Good evening, everyone. Good to have you all here. I'd like for you all to join with me, if you will, in, in prayer. First of all, can you all hear me okay? Yes? If you're having a little problem, make sure you raise your hand a little. Uh, I see a few hands going up, so I need a little bit of volume. Is anyone upstairs? Downstairs. You know what they say about life, we need to either go up or down, so you've got to be careful here. Need some sound. How's that? A little better? Yeah? <clears throat> All right, good. I'll make sure because I don't want to be yelling at you. Okay? All right. I wanted to ask you all, if you would, to pray with us uh, for uh, Francis Gonzalez's father, uh, Cornelio Meraz, who's in hospice care and is dying of prostate cancer. So she asked if we would pray for her family, pray for their strength and their peace through this, through this very difficult time. So why don't we do that now? <clears throat> father, this... Evening, we gather in the joy that you have given us in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Knowing, Lord, that the joy that you give us is our strength. But I know, Lord, that in times of, of great trial and suffering... In times of mourning and grief, it is, it's difficult for us and for those that we love very much to, to sense and understand that, that joy. But it is a trial, Lord, that you have prepared us for. And I know that Frances understands that as she has asked for prayer for her father, Cornelio, and we ask certainly that you would be with him through this very difficult time of hospice care and just the very transition into hospice care is a very traumatic experience for families, as we know. So I would pray, Father, for their strength, for all of Francis' family, and Lord, that your peace would be upon them in dealing with <clears throat> this new part of their lives. I pray, Father, that you would give Cornelio peace in knowing your presence and knowing that you are indeed God and that Jesus Christ is indeed his Lord. That you would also give opportunity to the family to realize their need for you through this time. Grant him, Lord, the life that you want him to have for as long as you want him to have it. We commit him to you, Lord, and to that family, Lord, we ask that you would just surround them in your great power and love, we ask these things tonight as we come to your word. 
also fill us with your spirit to understand and to know these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Revelation chapter 10, please. As we entered into our study of chapter 9 a couple of weeks ago, actually a few weeks ago, the very first part of that uh, study in chapter 9 had to do with identifying an angel that was bound. It took us practically the whole study of the first part of, of chapter 9. And chapter 10 is going to be no different because we are introduced to a mighty angel. Now, we've been introduced to angels before, uh, especially in chapter 5, one that was called a strong angel. And, uh, but it, it takes some time to, to realize the importance of each of these angels in the work of God in the times of the end, in the end times that we are looking actually forward to and in the future. So if you've been with us any amount of time, you realize as we look at the book of Revelation, we're looking at something that has to do with what is yet to come, not something that has already occurred, even though the things that are occurring today are pointing to these particular times. So with that in mind, let's just read the passage, beginning at verse 1 of Revelation chapter 10. We'll read down through verse 7, and then we'll look at the first four verses of this passage. I saw still another mighty angel, John said, coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Very descriptive. And some of this description is, is, is necessary for us to understand. He had a little book open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write... But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Thomas Paine an immigrant to America in 1774, had leaped from obscurity to fame after writing some brilliant pamphlets on freedom, one being entitled, one 
was entitled Common Sense, which you see there on, under his picture. Another one called the, the American Crises. That's just to name a couple of his pamphlets. During a very critical time in our nation's history. But he began to write his masterpiece called The Age of Reason. And that turned out to be a fatal mistake on his part. For as he considered this to be his great work, The Age of Reason, it was all about scoffing at Christianity and the Bible. It was all about scoffing at the Word of God. He's quoted as saying, this will destroy the Bible, speaking of his book. This will destroy the Bible. And within a hundred years, Bibles will be found only in museums or in musty corners of second-hand stores. His book, The Age of Reason, was published in 1794 in London. Much of the time when he wrote this, he was in Paris. But it brought him, just in the writing of this book, actually it was a pamphlet, but it was a very large pamphlet, so it's considered a book. It brought him so much misery and loneliness that once he said, I would give worlds if I had them, had the age of reason never been written. He said that about his own work. Paine became a bedridden invalid until his death. He was friendless and alone, and he died in 1809. The Bible was a bestseller then. The Bible remains a bestseller today. And many people have come and they have gone who have echoed the same words as Thomas Paine. They speak so boldly of the demise of God's Word, and yet God's Word continues on, and they have returned to the dust of the earth. Voltaire, Bertrand Russell, you can find many who have said the same things. They're gone. God's Word remains. And God's Word will continue to stand even in the darkest of days. And what we have been going through in Revelation chapters 6 through 9 so far have been describing for us the darkest of days that are yet to come. But God's Word is going to continue to stand as a light to point people to the true and living God. Even during the time of the tribulation that is yet to come, though we've been looking at the day of the Lord, which is the tribulation period. God's Word is going to remain. God's Word is still going to be made available to those who would turn to it. Because it is, as our Lord Jesus Himself said in Matthew 24, verse 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will by no means pass away. That is why I'm so encouraged that as we gather together tonight on a Wednesday night, sun's not even down yet, I can see it out there. I keep calling it night, but it's not really night. The night's coming. But even tonight, here we are, reading and hearing the Word of God. 
studying God's word in preparation for a day that is to come. A day that we will not see because we won't be here, but it will be a day that we must be familiar with. Because we've been given the opportunity to tell others about Jesus Christ. We have been given that commission by Jesus himself to go into all the world, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, make disciples of all the nations, and baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So as we move into Revelation 10 this evening, we arrive at another break in the judgments of God. We arrive at another break. It is a parenthesis in which more details of the tribulation are being filled in. And we have seen the cataclysmic events that will occur during the seal and trumpet judgments, what we've seen since chapter 6, which will actually bring unspeakable destruction and devastation upon the earth dwellers, upon all who are going to be dwelling on the earth during that time. And as we have been describing it, it is very hard for us to even think that there would be any reason whatsoever for the church to be on the earth at that time. God has His plan for the church. We see the church mentioned through up to Revelation 4 verse 1. And then after that, He deals with who is on this earth. So this break or parentheses will last until chapter 11, actually. Verse 15, when finally the seventh trumpet will eventually sound. Now remember that the seventh trumpet is going to sound and bring about seven more judgments, which are called the bowl judgments, which coincide actually with the trumpet judgments, as we'll see when we get there eventually. But when that trumpet sounds we will see the end of God's patience. Please take note of that. When the seventh trumpet sounds, we will see the end of God's patience. Is God patient now? Yes, very much so. God is still allowing people to come to His kingdom, come to the knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ. It's happening. It's harder now because of the days and the times in which we live. It's harder now because of the influence that the enemy has had in our public school systems, in our colleges and universities, what he's doing in our media here in this country, but all over the world, actually. And uh, so we see a a tremendous move of the enemy going on and on. But we knew that it was already going to be happening anyway, which shouldn't keep us from doing what God's called us to do which is to continue to live the life of Jesus Christ, to continue to live in preaching the gospel of Jesus and bringing the lost to salvation. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit that does it, but He uses us. And He he made it very clear with Paul when he said that He uses the base things of the world, you know, the, 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 the bottom of the heap, as it were, because we realize we know who we are. We, we know that we are sinners, saved by the grace of God. But God wants to use us But all the glory goes to Him. All the glory goes to the Lord. So when that trumpet sounds, we will see the end of God's patience. But along the way, we have realized that He is more than only about vengeance and punishment. He's 
not just about vengeance. I, I don't want anybody just to think that all we're doing in the book of Revelation is talking about God who's just coming down, you know, with punishment. Yes, it is happening. Yes, He is a God of justice. Yes, He is a God of righteousness and a God of His Word to say, I'm going to punish rebellion. I'm going to punish the rejection of my son Jesus Christ. All all of that. But as we've seen between the sixth and the seventh seal, what we saw when there was that silence, when there was that calm before the storm, there being that pause as as we saw before, here he once again tempers his judgments with mercy. As we alluded to last time, if you remember, I I mentioned to you uh, Habakkuk chapter 3 or Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 2. Oh Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. Oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. And God does. God remembers mercy. He is merciful. He is a merciful God, isn't he? I, I am amazed how merciful He is toward us. As believers in Jesus Christ, how merciful He is. But if we take it all the way back to the time that we came to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, listen, wasn't He merciful then? That when we were living in the ugliness of sin, when we were living in the in, in this, the darkness of that wickedness that we had in our own minds, in our own hearts. That God would even care enough to send someone in our way to show us the cross of Jesus Christ. And what the cross meant. And what it means to us today. I, I have not left the cross back 40 years ago. I've not left it back there. It's been with me. And it stays with me. And the blood of Jesus Christ didn't stay back there 40 years ago. It's with me now. Because the blood has never lost its power to cleanse and to heal. And to show the mercy of Jesus. To show the mercy of God. And I didn't leave the resurrection behind 40 years ago. It's with me. And I hope it's with you. And I hope it's something that is a part of you all the time. The message of the cross should not ever be taken lightly. Even if we've been believers for any number of months, weeks, or years. But before we can move on properly into this chapter, got to get back to the chapter. We, uh, we must identify this angel of verse 1. So let's go back to verse 1 for just a moment. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. I took a snapshot of that today. No, I'm just kidding. I just want to see how many of you are awake with me. I, I just seem to have found this one. I, you know, I just, just so you can have something. 
to relate to in this. I mean, because these are awesome, awesome pictures. What I'm, I mean, not this is an awesome picture. This is an awesome picture. What we have in our Bibles, I mean, just an amazing thing. And, and the fact is, most of us, for, for a very long time, if we've read this passage and all, we, we probably considered that this is speaking of Jesus Christ. And it's quite possible. I'm not going to put that aside, but I am going to give you another thing to think about. And so, you know, if you think it's Jesus, okay, it's all right. But there's, uh, there are others that see this as a true angel. And obviously a mighty angel, as the text indicates. But still, a created being. Now Jesus is not a created being, he's the creator. So he's either, this is either Jesus or it's not. Okay, it's an angel. Now, let's, let's investigate because it's very important we, we get to know what this being represents and who it is. So the Greek word that is used here is angelos. Angelos, of course, the word from which we get angels. Uh, and it's interesting, though, that, that in, the, in the Greek language, two Gs, uh, which are the gamma symbol, put together, A-G-G-E-L-O-S, uh, the two Gs together actually has the N-G sound, angelos. So uh, that's how that is. But when we transcribe it, we transcribe to where we can understand that. But... If you ever look at the Greek, it's A-G-G-E-L-O-S. The, the gammas actually is, is the two of them together pronounce ng. So it's angelos. Okay, so just a little Greek lesson. But uh, uh, it means messenger. I, I think most of us know that. The, the, the angel, or the word angel means messenger. And, and certainly a case can be made for this being Jesus or an angel. But it would be best to let the text point to being as a mighty angel rather than Jesus for just a moment and here's why because those who believe that it is Christ will say that this is uh, that, that this being is described as coming in the clouds well how many times do we read you know Jesus himself like in Matthew or in Mark and Luke you know he says you know the son of man is coming in the clouds so we say well it's got to be a cloud it's got to be the Lord uh, uh, he comes in the clouds well, what about the throne of God? We know what we've read all earlier in the book of Revelation, that at the, around the throne of God is what? A rainbow. It goes all the way around, you see. Uh, and it encircles the throne. And, and this being has a rainbow encircling him. Uh, his face is shining like the sun, and his, his feet are like pillars of fire. Now, that's a tremendous description. And these certainly are strong points in identifying this mighty angel as Jesus when, when comparing, for example, Christ's description in chapter 1. If you go back there for just a moment and look at verses 13 through 16, it says, And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Now, remember that we've been saying that the, the enemy looks like this, or there's, the word like there is just to say it looks like, but it's not really that. But here, this is very important for you to understand. When it says that uh, in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about uh, the chest with a golden band. That doesn't mean that that being isn't Jesus. You have to remember something. The description of the Son of Man is, it comes from the Old Testament, primarily by the prophet Ezekiel and the usage of that. And, and so when, when John began to see one like the Son of Man, I mean... 
he is seeing his Jesus, the Jesus he walked with for three and a half years, and even the Jesus he saw die on the cross and was buried and, ro- and rose again after being crucified. He rose again after the third day. When he sees him, he, he does see him in a glorified body, but it's a body that he can see and touch and feel, if you remember. But now he sees him as a, one like the Son of Man. And, I, and when you think of that, you have to go back to all those descriptions. So that's the word like here. That's, that's a, d- a different application of that here. And we talked about that probably back in chapter 1, but that was a long time ago. So I just thought I'd bring that back up. So anyway, he uh, goes on and says, His head and his hair were like, white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. We know this Jesus, don't we? And then his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun. There it is. Like the sun shining in its strength. And we say, well, see, there it is. <laughs> Got to be Jesus. But as we look a little closer, and remember, I'm telling you, I'm not trying to change your mind. I just want you to just think about this, because we have to be true to the text. So as we look a little closer at our text, we see John telling us that still another mighty angel comes down from heaven. That's what he says. Still another mighty angel comes down from heaven. That's verse 1. Now the word another is the the word that we need to pay attention to, the word another. Because the word another, here in Revelation 10 verse 1, is the word alos in the Greek, A-L-L-O-S, alos. And it means another of the same kind. Another of the same kind. A good example is found in John 14 verse 16, where Jesus says this. He says, and I will pray the Father... And he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. He will give you a, another helper. In other words, another of the same kind. Well, who's of the same kind as Jesus? The Holy Spirit, isn't it? Because that's who he's talking about. The helper is the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the paraclete. And so, I will pray to the Father who will give you another helper. So he uses the word alos. And Jesus meant another like himself. And that would be the Holy Spirit. But if the Greek word heteros is used for another, heteros, that would express this meaning. A qualitative difference. It denotes another of a different sort. Now, there's a word we, we understand here in, in the English, right? Heteros, hetero, heterosexual. Would mean uh, it's usually applied to two people of different uh, genders or sexes, male and female. That's why heteros is used uh, as, as far as the beginning of that word, heterosexual, because you're talking about a, a male and a female. So it's one of a different sort. So... That's just to give you a little bit of a history on that particular word and, and, and its meaning. But, for example, Paul used this term, heteros, in Romans 7.23 when he said, But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Another law. In other words, a very different 
kind of law. Paul uses the Greek word heteros, which is speaking of a law that is different from that of the spirit of life. Now this law, by the way, while we're here, might as well explain this, but this law, by the way, led to condemnation and death. It made him aware of his sinfulness, but did nothing to cleanse him from it. Thus it was not a law of life, but a law of death, which is in direct opposition to the grace of God, extended to us through Jesus Christ, which gives us life. So you see the difference? You see how important the words are? Alos and heteros. So the word another in the Greek is very important, and we may miss what the writer was trying to express if we don't look at the proper word used. In this case, in using the Greek word alos, John was linking this verse with something he had already spoken of. One of the same kind. So in Revelation chapter 5 verse 2, there is a connection with the angel of Revelation chapter 10 verse 1. And it says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? What links these two verses together is the word strong. Because the words for strong in chapter 5 verse 2 is the same Greek word as the word mighty in chapter 10 verse 1. Iskudos is the word in the Greek. Iskudos. But in chapter 5 we saw that this angel was not Jesus Christ. You see? We, we saw that already uh, five chapters ago that uh, this angel was not Jesus Christ, the one that was in chapter 5, verse 2. For we saw that Christ as the Lamb had, uh, that has been slain, and He took the scroll out of the Father's hand. We saw Christ as the Lamb. We know where Jesus was when He had the scroll. And it was this angel, of course, that is describing this, or at least a part of that, that issue, by asking the question, who is, the, who is worthy? Who is the one worthy? So the angel in chapter 10 would be another angel of the same kind with the angel in chapter 5. Now, here's another consideration before we go on. Consider also that we never see Jesus spoken of as an angel in the New Testament. Uh, You can do some digging if you'd like, but go ahead and try. I mean, you know, because if he is, I want to know. But Jesus is never seen or spoken of as an angel in the New Testament including, including the book of Revelation. We also must note that the next time Jesus appears on the earth, He comes to set up His kingdom. This isn't, bef- this isn't at that time when He comes. So keep that in mind. Because in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7, it says, Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. Now, we don't see that here, do we? Not in the description of this angel in chapter one, verse, uh, chapter ten, verse one. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, Amen. Every eye will see him, and they will see that he is pierced. So, who's this angel then? Remember that Jesus does not come back to the earth to just a select few. All will see Him. And keep in mind that the rapture of the church, that at the rapture of the church, Jesus does not come back to the earth, but He meets us in the air. But for this angel to carry 
it uh, upon himself. For this angel that carried upon himself the very characteristics of Christ. Because we have agreed that those characteristics are the characteristics of Christ, right? We all can agree because we've just, seen, we've just read them all. But, but for this angel to carry it upon himself the very characteristics of Christ should remind us that he is, in fact, the representative of Jesus Christ, reflecting his glory and bearing the insignia attributed to Christ himself. And what would that be? The symbol of God's presence. The pillars of fire. Which is what his feet are described, or his legs and feet are described as. When we read about that in the book of Exodus, in the Old Testament, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, it was describing what? The presence of God with the children of Israel that are in the wilderness, having left Egypt, having met the Lord at Sinai, you see. Reflecting His glory and bearing the insignia attributed to Christ Himself, which is the symbol of God's presence. Now, I've got to ask you this question. Do we reflect those characteristics of our time spent with Jesus? Because I can tell you that angel spends his time with Jesus. So listen carefully to the question. Do we reflect those characteristics of our time spent with Jesus as the angels do and as Moses did. You remember Moses? Not Charlton Heston. Moses. Moses, Moses. (laughs) When he went to the mountain... When he climbed by himself into the very presence of God, his countenance was changed. When he spent all that time, some 40 days, and his brother and the and his family and, and the rest of the children of Israel that were waiting for him, they were saying, he must be dead by now. But he spent all that time in the presence of God. When he came down, they couldn't bear to look upon Moses because Moses had the glory shining forth. The glory of God so strong that he even had it when he would come among them. Look at, it says, whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. In other words, it, it, it was shining. That's what it means. It was shining. And then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. He had to put a veil over his face just to be among his own people. It's hard to see that glory. But it was a wonderful thing. Now, here's the, here's, the, here's the thought that you have to remember about Moses being human. Because after a while, Moses put the veil over him because he wanted them to think that he, he you know. But there was a time when his glory, the glory kind of faded away. So he put the cover anyway, right? What a leg. Come on, man. You're cheating. But that's what happened. 
And you know that the Apostle John himself, way before he would see this vision in the book of Revelation, or as he's writing the book of Revelation, John said, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. We will be in His presence. You're going to shine like Moses. But the fact of the matter is that today we can shine. It may not be in some glorious way unless you rig lights, you know, around you. But, it, but you know what it is? It is light. It's God's light coming out from you. The light of His love, the light of His grace, the light of His mercy, the light of His truth, the light of His compassions, the light. of His healing. How many of you have been out in the sun this summer? Somewhere, maybe not here in El Paso. But yeah, in El Paso it happens a lot. But maybe other places. But how many of you have gone out in the sun? You stay out in the sun so long, man. You're just soaking, uh, soaking the rays, as they say. And you know what, you know what the... the, the the result is sunburn, right? Sunburn. I mean, we, you know, the, the lotion companies, man, they make billions of dollars, but we still get burned. Figure that one out. So what do we do? You know, we get burned one day and the, about the next week we say, well, I'll get back out in the sun, but you know what? I'm going to have to put some lotion on. And we put stuff to block the rays a little bit, right? You spend time in the sun, you're going to have the result of being sunburned. You block the sun, you stay white, I guess, whatever color you have. But here's the thing. What about our lives? It's the same way. If we stay in the glory of the Lord's presence, singularly, individually, in our own homes, in our closets, our prayer closets, and, and, and all. We, we just spend more time, more and more time with the Lord. We're soaking in the rays, you know what I mean? The problem is that many times we block them. We do things to block them. My question to you tonight is, are you blocking the rays of God's glory in your life? Don't let anything block the resplendency of Christ's glory upon your life. In fact, David's words should be our prayer. David's words in Psalm 17, verse 15, it says, As for me, I will see your, your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awaken your likeness. Would that not be what we would want? To just have the likeness of Jesus Christ in our lives? You know, not for, not, you know, it's, 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 it's just so that... Because we love Him so much. We want to reflect His life. We want to reflect His glory in everything that we do. It's hard every day because we're human. And we go on our ups and downs and and our trials this way and that way. But you know what? If we stay there, we're going to shine. 
And the world needs to see the glory of Jesus in us. Because they've seen enough of all of the all of the charlatans, they've seen enough of all of the hypocrites, you know, that go around saying this and do other things. They've seen enough of that. They need to see Jesus in you. And what did Paul call that? In Colossians he said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let it be seen. Well, we've got to get back to the angels' actions because I don't have too much time left here. So let's look at the angels' actions in verse 2. It says, He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And again, you know, I think we've all considered that this was Jesus. Now we have some, some other thing to consider, but it's okay. See, so Jesus is this mighty angel. But if we look at the evidence, it's an angel. So if this indeed is a representative angel, as some believe to be, even uh, have, have considered it to be Michael the archangel, possibly. We don't know, but that's just a consideration. Then he has been given the responsibility to make the formal assertion of Christ's right to rule and reign over all creation. If it, if it is Jesus himself, then Jesus comes and makes his own assertion. But nonetheless, he's going to make that assertion. He's made it already that he, is going to, uh, he has the right to rule and reign over all of his creation. That claim had been acknowledged in, in, in heaven in Revelation chapter 5. Just go back and read that. You'll see the claim was acknowledged and now it is being asserted on earth. The claim was in heaven, now it's being asserted on earth. He claims dominion for Christ over all the world. In the rivers, in the sea, in the shores, the Gentile nations, the, in Israel, the settled civilized world, the surging and restless tribes of all the world, all of it, all of it belong to Jesus. And He has the right to claim it. He has the right to reign and to rule over His creation. So there is this open book in His hand. We're not told what's in it. We can just imagine that if it's, if it's anything like the scroll that he opened, that Jesus opened in chapter 5, then it, then it is a, uh, somewhat of a, maybe a condensed version of, of, of all of the judgments. It certainly is going to involve judgments because anytime we see the angels now in the book of Revelation, we're talking about judgments here. It could also be the, the very gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the, the true gospel of Christ, the, the whole reason why Jesus came. Because we're going to see at the end of this chapter, here in this very short chapter, but we're going to see at the end of this chapter, that John is going to be called to go in, in, in this book of Revelation to continue to teach and preach to all the tribes, nations, tongues, and people. So in effect, his... His work continues even to this day because of this book of Revelation. But there is this open book in his hand, which is what Daniel was told to seal to the time of the end and is now to be open to full view for the end has come. And that's a consideration here. If you look at Daniel chapter 12 verse 4, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. And he's got the book. And John is getting ready to write other things because he hears these sundress things, and we'll see that in a moment. But he wants to write it, and then he's told from heaven not to write it yet. 
So again, we have to consider God's timing about everything. God's timing, especially about when the judgments happen. And so here is this pause before the next trumpet blows. Before the next series of judgments begin. And the Lord is about to act again and will always act. Listen, God will always, or the Lord Jesus Christ will always act in compliance and accordance with a mind and the will of God the Father. He will always act according to God's will, His Father's will. Jesus is the greatest example for us of, of, obey, of, of obeying God, of obeying the Father, of being obedient. And all unfulfilled prophecies and promises will now come to pass. They are going to be coming to pass. That is what we see at the rest, in the rest of this particular chapter. As I said, the end of God's patience is now here. When that trumpet blows in chapter 11. But the assertion of Christ's right to rule as demonstrated by the angel's feet upon the sea and upon the earth reminds us of the command given to the children of Israel through Moses in Deuteronomy 11 verse 24. Every place, God said to these people, every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. From the wilderness in Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, and even the western sea. The river, the first river being the Nile, the river Euphrates being the... Euphrates River to the east, and even to the western sea, which is the Mediterranean, shall be your territory. Wherever your foot goes, there is that sense of understanding the right to that land. God gave them the right. So the angel, if he's an angel, is representing Christ, and wherever his feet tread, that is the right to reign and to rule for Jesus. But it was also given to Joshua in Joshua 1 verse 3. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said, to Moses. So you see, that it's very important to understand this placing of the feet upon the land and upon the sea. And there's another reason for this occurrence. Another reason. Though the beast with seven heads is about to arise out of the sea, as we'll see in Revelation 13 verse 1, and the beast with two horns like a lamb out of the earth in chapter 13 verse 11... Yet it is but for a time, and that time shall no longer be. As the rest of our text in Revelation 10 states, when once the seventh trumpet is about to sound, the angel with his right foot in the sea and his left foot on the earth claims both as gods and soon to be cleared of the enemy, soon to be cleared of the usurper, soon to be cleared of the, of the devil and his followers. In other words, Satan will assert his claim to the earth, but when Christ's representative puts his feet down, it is Christ who will take possession of his own property and subdue all assaults of the enemy. It is Christ. And eventually we know that Jesus does it himself, right? Because of the book of Zechariah that tells us that Jesus will place his feet upon the Mount of Olives. How many of you remembered that? (laughs) There's a test afterwards. The Mount of Olives, well, his feet come to the earth. And he goes to take possession of his city, Jerusalem. Come to Israel with us and see that wall that he's going to go through. See it. Those of you that have been there, it's amazing, isn't it? Just, oh, you got to come. Don't put it off. 
Well, there's the angel's assertion that we've got to get to here. Now the assertion comes in verses 3 and 4. And we'll just close with this here in just a moment. It says that he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. It is very possible that the voice that John hears from heaven is the voice of Jesus. So if that's in heaven and the angel's got his feet on earth, I think we see another consideration of the distinction of Jesus and this angel. So, the first part of verse 3 is a reference to the mighty voice of the Lion of the tribe of Judah, whom whom the angel represents. It is a reminder that prior to the exercise of judgment, that the lion's roar was a symbol of imminent judgment. The lion's roar was a symbol of imminent judgment. Take, for example, Hosea 11, verse 10. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, then his sons shall come trembling from the west. And, you know, when you read Hosea, it's talking about judgment. And then you can read in in Joel, chapter 3, verse 6. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Folks, that is a very clear, clear verse of Scripture in the content of what it says. God is going to judge during the day of the Lord. This is talking about the day of the Lord. But He's going to judge, and yet He is going to be a shelter for His people. Well, who are His people on the earth at that time? Who is all of this about? It's all about Israel. Where are they? In Jerusalem. What is Zion? Jerusalem. Are you getting the picture here? How is it that people today are just throwing Israel out? You know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Because they don't want to believe that the Israel that is there is really the Israel that God is planning and putting in there for bringing about all of these end time prophecies. You can't have any prophecies without Israel being there. So he's going to be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Amos chapter 1 verse 2. He said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Well, by the way, you need to go to Carmel too when we go to Israel. But it won't be withering when we go there. So just, just so you'll know. It's been said that the lion roars when he is about to make his last leap upon the victim. That interesting. The lion roars when he is about to make his last leap upon his victim. In a loud voice to be heard all over the earth, the assertion of Christ's right to rule and his intention of accomplishing it is made known. And here is where it says, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to ride, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. This passage relates to the voice of the Lord as mentioned in Psalm 29. And if you look at this for just a moment, verses 3 through 9, 
I want you to see the, the mention that there's seven times the voice of the Lord is mentioned. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. So there's the connection with thunder. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf, Lebanon and Syrian, which is Syria, like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everyone says, glory. The voice of the Lord. The God who thunders. The glory of God that thunders. But why keep John from writing what he hears? Why keep John from writing what he's hearing? I want you to consider this as we close, as we look forward to the next time to sort this part out. Is it is possible that when John has heard that what John has heard is so terrible that God in mercy withholds them. Since, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter six, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The godly are thus kept from morbid or gloomy ponderings or thoughts over the evil to come. The ungodly are not driven by despair into utter recklessness of life. In wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. We can only speculate really what's being said and why he isn't able to write it. No reason to spend our time trying to figure all of that out. What is important, though, is the pause for God's mercy to go forth and to give people opportunity to come to Him even during the tribulation, which should cause us to meditate on, on, on this passage is the fact that Jesus has indeed the right to rule and to reign over all of his creation. And that is going to be happening when he comes to set up his kingdom. But this is the pronouncement, this is the assertion being given to all the earth. Why? Because of all of the judgments that have happened so far. Remember how we started with the seal judgments and there was just, you know, there were bad things happening the first half of the tribulation, as it were. But then when we got to the trumpet judgments, how things just got incredibly worse and dark. Even to the extent that people will one day wish they could die, but they won't be able to for a period of five months. 
But then, when that five months is over, what great devastation, as we saw last time. John, not writing, is to say, as soon as we see the rest of this chapter and into chapter 11, when that seventh trumpet sounds, what it's telling us is, There is an end to God's patience. He's still patient today, but His patience will come to an end. I've often described it this way. And there are, there are verses of Scripture that, that, that give us this, this picture, that the picture is that of, a, of, a, of an archer with a bow, and he's just taking it further back and further back and further back. And you can only go so far. And God has pulled and waited and waited and waited. It's very clear that He's already said, I'm going to judge, but I'm giving you an opportunity to come to life. I'm giving you an opportunity to receive the love of Jesus Christ, my Son. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And yet men love darkness more than light. And all this punishment was, was, was really set aside and set apart for, for Satan and his, and his minions. But now all who will not receive Jesus will suffer the same judgment. And the bow is pulled And one day, he's going to let go. So today, he's just waiting. But in his waiting, he waits with great compassion and great love. And I guess in a sense, I'm preaching to the choir. But it's time for the choir to get out of the choir loft. It's time for us to go and tell people Jesus is coming. Get ready. Get ready. Let's pray.